0: From Madison, Wisconsin in the United States of global hegemony, it's Didactic Syncast, with your host Eric P. So powerful. A few heart-stopping seconds of anxiety.
1: And welcome to the Didactic Syncast, your weekly overview of everything important on the planet Earth. I am Eric S. Piotrowski, aka Duke Scath, in the world of video games, aka Skartol, in the world of Wikipedia and Reddit. Each week I bring you a range of news stories, historical and literary perspectives, and my opinions on topics like current events, war, human rights, economics, education, hip hop music, and killer robots. So buckle up and let's get started. A little bit better and dope be a brand new kid to show biz. with now a job persevere but I now do me a favor
0: favor let me an ear then we can find
1: a grind to fill space and drop the
0: base with the
1: first of all hopefully you've noticed that I finally got the freaking levels right no <clears throat> um I uh, I I was for the last few weeks, I've been really frustrated by the fact that my voice was really loud, and the sounds seemed a lot quieter and so I was trying to play around with it, trying to tweak things because there's about six different pieces of software I'm using here i'm i'm put I got the headphones into the ISB or the USB plug here imic, and then that goes into the computer and then that's so that's the in mic, but then I'm running it through Soundflower and then that goes into a program called uh, line in, and then that goes into the other line in, and that goes into the uh, audio editor program that I use called Amadeus Pro, so there's a lot of different points along the path that I have to try to tweak, and I tried making the sounds louder and blah, 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 whatever. The point is, it's all working out now, so hopefully the whole thing will sound a lot better, and it won't be so jarring when we go from my voice being loud to the sounds being quieter. Anyway, uh, yeah, this week I met Jay Asher. Who? I know. Uh, okay, so Sun Prairie High School, where I teach in Wisconsin, uh, did this thing this year called Grasp, which is great reading at Sun Prairie. And we had each student pick one of 10 books to read from, uh, to read. And, uh, I led a discussion. And so the students read it over the course of the year, ostensibly. A lot of them did not. Uh, and then we had discussions about him, and I hosted the discussion about *Mouse* by Art Spiegelman, which is a great book. Uh, it's a comic book about his father's experiences in the Nazi concentration camps. And um, Anyway, one of the books that we had in that program was called 13 Reasons Why, and the author is a guy named Jay Asher, and it's his first novel. It's about this girl who commits suicide and then um, sends these audio tapes to these different people, 13 people, I suppose, and... Uh, they listen to what part they played or didn't play in her life story that caused her to take this horrible decision and it's it's a it's a good book it's it's very nuanced uh, it doesn't take stupid extremes um, the structure is great because you have her talking and then you have the guy who's he 's going through it he 's like the sixth or seventh person to go through these tapes, and we so we see him listening and reacting, and we have the girl talking and so it's it's a good mix of things um i don 't think he's the greatest writer in the world, but whatever uh, you know when she 's talking into a tape recorder i don 't think she would be talking in a way that looks like a story being described. You know how are you doing? I asked oh, i'm okay, you said, and crumpled up your napkin and things like that. People don't tend to include that kind of detail when they talk into a microphone. <clears throat> I should know. I talk into microphones a lot. Oh, it's hilarious. Anyway, uh, yeah. It's a good book. It's worth reading, but I'd probably give it... I will give it three stars out of five when I finally post my review to Goodreads. And if you're not a follower of mine on Goodreads. Good grief, what are you doing? Anyway, the very exciting news that they broke to us last month was that Jay Asher was going to be coming to our school. And he did. And it was great. It was really cool to meet him. He's a really nice guy and he's really good at presenting. Because a lot of times when authors come to discuss a book, uh, they read from the book or they sort of tell stories and things. and, And sometimes it's kind of dry. And I was nervous that that might be the case here. But it wasn't. It totally wasn't. He had a great PowerPoint presentation and Uh, He just had a lot of great things to say and interesting stories about his life and the process and all sorts of other stuff. So it was a really good experience. But I have to admit, I was kind of jealous because, you know, anytime you meet somebody, anytime I meet somebody who's a published writer, I feel a little... uh, envious I suppose Uh, and not that I really have a right to because I've written four novels but I haven't sent any of them off to publishers because they need a lot of work and the first three are a trilogy and they have to be completely rewritten the first one I started when I was 12 years old so I mean what kind of shape is that going to be in anyway uh, that was an exciting moment in my week end of story let's talk about some current events Two big prison sentences got handed down this week. Uh, Charles Taylor was sentenced to 50 years in prison for human rights abuses at The Hague. Um yeah, Charles G. Taylor, the former president of Liberia and a once powerful warlord, was sentenced on Wednesday to 50 years in prison over his role in atrocities in Sierra Leone during its civil war in the 1990s. The judge presiding over the sentencing and an international criminal court near the Hague said Mr. Taylor had been found guilty of, quote, aiding and abetting as well as planning some of the most heinous and brutal crimes recorded in human history end quote, and that a lengthy prison term underscored his position at the top of government during that period. Mr. Taylor was the first head of state convicted by an international court since the Nuremberg trials after World War II. Uh, and as I've said before, uh, there's a really important documentary film called Pray the Devil Back to Hell about this group of women who basically forced an end to that civil war through nonviolent resistance. And uh, yeah, I, I think that's a really important part of the story, and not a lot of people are talking about that in these news articles. Um but i mean obviously there's enough to talk about with the sentencing itself and yeah so that happened also hosni mubarak the former strongman in egypt was sentenced to life in prison after a ten-month trial he attended on a stretcher locked inside a courtroom cage A judge ordered his transfer to a Cairo maximum security prison, according to State TV. While Mubarak was sentenced to life in prison for his role in the killing of pro-reform demonstrators, a charge for which he could have faced the death penalty, he was cleared of corruption, and his sons were acquitted of the charges that they faced. And a lot of people in Egypt are really angry about this because... It feels I mean, obviously, life in prison isn't really a slap on the wrist, but it also feels to some people like it's falling short of the kind of justice that he ought to be getting because he was basically a tyrant and a dictator for many, many years, and it's kind of messed up that um, there's not more corruption charges, and uh, obviously it's good that he's being sentenced for killing of pro-reform demonstrators. Um, but anyway, elsewhere in the article it said, uh, "Short and this article is from CNN, Shortly before his fall from grace, President Barack Obama said that Mubarak had, quote, been very helpful on a range of tough issues, end quote. And Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu last summer told the Arab language news network Al Arabiya that he respected Mubarak. So... Yeah, this is one of those situations where the U.S. was friends with Mubarak right up to the end, and, uh, oh, wait, uh, I guess he's not good. But you know what? Again, he had been a tyrant for a long time before this fall from grace, so it's one of those cases where the United States will support people who act undemocratically when it benefits us, and will condemn them when it benefits us, and it's not a principled stance, and I'm sorry, the U.S. government ought to take a principled stance on human rights. Duh! The craziest story this week, and most of you probably already heard about this, uh, there was a guy in the... Um, <laughs> this isn't the actual headline, but I wrote it down as Naked Man Tries to Eat Another Guy's Face, comma Gets Shot Dead. And it's exactly what I just said. It happened in Miami. Um, An emergency room doctor at Jackson Memorial Hospital said that Eugene's attack could have been induced by bath salts, a drug nicknamed after the bathroom product it resembles. And this is a synthetic designer drug, and it causes hallucinations and fits of rage and all sorts of other stuff. Uh, What a horrifying situation, because apparently the dude was just walking down the street, and this other guy, naked, jumps on him, starts eating his face, like clawing at his eyes and stuff, and oh, God, how horrible. So bath salts, not even once, kids, stay away from that stuff. And on a happy note, to finish off the current events, uh, the Presidential Medal of Freedom was awarded to 13 people recently, including Toni Morrison. And I'm a big fan of Ms. Morrison. Her book, The Bluest Eye, is a beautiful and heartbreaking and painful and horrifying and gorgeous work of literature. And um, yeah, Obama said when he was uh, issuing the uh, medal, "I quote, I remember reading Song of Solomon when I was a kid and not just trying to figure out how to write, but also how to be and how to think. Uh, he said in reference to Morrison's 1977 novel. And uh, another award was delivered to Dolores Huerta, who is a woman who helped organize the United Farm Workers, and she's totally awesome. And she's the one who came up with the Si Se Puede, uh, Yes We Can thing that Obama kind of took and ran with in 2008. And uh, so anyway, he said, uh, I think about Dolores Huerta, reading about her when I was starting off as an organizer. Everybody on this stage has marked my life in profound ways. It's just a shame that, his presidency has drifted so far from the spirit of, you know, grassroots activism and attention to the least of us that marks the United Farm Workers and even the community activism that he did when he was on the south side of Chicago. If you read the things he wrote as a community activist, they're inspiring, they're beautiful. And I just feel it's a shame that, like Clinton, although Clinton was, I mean, dude, Clinton was a high-powered lawyer you know, working for big businesses and stuff, and I never really believed that Clinton was ever like a an in-the-trenches organizer of any kind, but Obama was, and it kind of sucks for me to see him... I'm not prepared to say Obama has sold out, but he sure spends a lot of time fundraising these days, and I know that's what a president has to do, and that's the problem. It's not him, it's the system, but he could do more to be fucking the system, man. He could be standing up for... You know, he said when he was running for president, that if anybody's labor rights are ever threatened, I'll get my work shoes on and march on the picket line with you. Well, you know what? When Walker did his stupid horse crap here in Wisconsin, he had a chance to come down here, Obama did, and he didn't. And that's that's messed up, man. He should have been here with us marching and stuff. So, I don't know. It's frustrating. Am I going to vote for Obama? Who knows? I mean, it depends on how close Wisconsin is. And speaking of which, by the time you hear this, the vote may have already happened to recall scott walker i mean he's been recalled so who's going to is he going to get reelected or is he going to um you know get replaced by this guy barrett and uh, you know if, if walker wins that's going to it's like it's like wisconsin's doubling down on um the, the, the way that Scott Walker's been going. And it'll really suck if he wins. And, uh, I mean, you know, if Barrett wins, I think it'll be better. I don't I don't have any hope that everything's going to be magic and perfect. And even if Walker wins this recall, I think a lot of people are supporting Walker just because they don't like the idea of the recall. And I think there may be some chances next time around with the actual election election to beat him, but we'll see. I mean, it depends on the economy and how much money gets put in, because there's been so much money coming from outside the state this time around, and I don't know, we went out canvassing for the Barrett campaign, and here's the thing. Canvassing's an important thing. I think it's important for human beings to interact with each other and to talk to their neighbors about, "Hey, there's this thing coming up. Let's let's engage as citizens about this thing." But it wasn't engaging with uh, with other citizens about this thing. It was this script that they handed us and it was focus grouped. And they said, "You know, read it exactly as it is on the page because we've focus grouped this a lot." They kept saying it over and over, "Focus group, focus group." And we weren't going out to talk to people about the campaign. We were just going out to say, "Hey, The vote's coming up. Do you know where the polling place is? When do you think you'll go? And it looks like a lot of people in this area will be voting on Tuesday. There's there's all this bandwagon psychology trying to get people to commit. And I understand that, you know, the research shows that that's what works. But you know what? I'm not interested in being a mouthpiece for a focus group script, okay? I want to talk to people about what democracy means and what we want out of our government. And I wanted the opportunity to tell people that as a teacher, here's why I'm angry at Scott Walker. Here's why I want something to change. Here's why we need change if we want good schooling. And in fact, I printed out this thing because I thought, hey, maybe that's not it. That's a receipt from when I got my oil changed. Uh, <laughs> How ridiculous. No, but I thought that there might be moments when I would want to talk to people about why I want Scott Walker gone and maybe I should have this piece of information ready, but that opportunity never came up because, of course, we were just sort of talking to people about you know, what's going on. That's my schedule for next year, what I'm teaching. Where is it? Ah, I can't find it. Oh, wait, here it is. I got it. My desk is a mess right now. I got one more week of school and then I'm on summer break. Next time I do a show, I'll be so happy because it'll be all over. Now, I should also say on this tangent of a tangent that I got chosen to hand out diplomas this year, which is a great honor. I had been chosen once in the past and it's a tremendous experience to hand someone their diploma and only six teachers in the school get chosen to do that. So it's pretty special to be asked to do that. And, uh, I'm very humbled and grateful for that. I also recognize that it's a popularity contest, but it's not a popularity contest in the terms of just like, uh oh, so-and-so is cool. But like, who's had an impact on me as a student, right? And a lot of people think carefully about who they choose for that honor. And so I'm I'm very humbled, as I say. Anyway, so, yeah, next time you hear me, it'll probably be with great celebration! Actually, that's not true. Next time you hear me, it'll be on the Veteran Gamers podcast, which we're recording on Wednesday. It's currently Sunday. You don't care. Anyway, uh, yeah, so Scott Walker's whole thing was this whole thing about, oh, the school districts have much more flexibility now that there's no collective bargaining among the teachers, and blah, 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 blah. But you know what? Here's this article I print, I saved last year in February of 2011 because I, I knew it was going to be important because this is exactly what he's saying now. And it, this article says, Wisconsin's local governments never asked to end collective bargaining, as Scott Walker contends. Uh, in the article, they have a quote from Miles Turner, the executive director of the Wisconsin Association of School District Administrators. Quote, our position is we've sought significant modifications in bargaining laws, but we've never sought to eliminate collective bargaining rights, he says. Uh, In fact, the association which represents almost all of the state's 424 school districts doesn't want to do away with collective bargaining. Turner says, doing so, quote, would create a very problematic work environment because right now we have an established system, and everyone knows how the systems work, and there's a comfort with everyone having a seat at the table. If you take that away, it leads to an uncertain work environment, and that could lead to strikes. Now, I don't know about it leading to strikes, but I can tell you from personal experience that next school year is going to be very strange and tense and worrisome for a lot of us teachers, so... I'm I'm angry at Scott Walker, and I hope the recall works, but even if it doesn't, I mean, I I personally feel like I've kind of dug myself a niche and and proven myself as an invaluable member of the faculty, so I'm not too worried about myself in terms of job stability, but I am worried about the add-on effect, because... Right now, we have a contract with the school district, and that contract stipulates, here's what the administration can require of us, and here's what they cannot require of us. And when that's gone, the administration can pretty much require whatever it wants of us. And obviously, there's a degree to which they don't want to overdo it because it'll just crush our souls, but it's kind of like minimum wage. Okay, there will be a, you know... uh, (laughs) There, there, won't be, there won't be so many lines drawn. And, and, and Administrations, it's not as though they're looking to overwork us, but that's what administration does, right? And that's the same way as teachers often have to be told, like, hey, you can't require this, 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 and this of students because we often would. We have to be able to step back and say, wait, what else are students dealing with? And what can I reasonably expect of them? So I, I just worry about that add-on effect. And I also worry about the fact that, There's, instead of like, okay, is this person meeting their requirements under the contract, the question then becomes, okay, how hard is this person working to go above and beyond and show, you know, there's that scene in Parenthood where Steve Martin is talking to his boss and his boss is like, you know, come on, you have a month, dazzle me. And Steve Martin's like, dazzle you? What what does that even mean? And I, I just think that's what a lot of administrations around the state of Wisconsin are going to be expecting, you know? And it's going to be the expectation that you you put in lots of extra hours like we don't already, right? So, I don't know. I, I, as be- jell Biafra offer once said, the next few years may not be pleasant, but they sure ain't going to be boring. Let's talk cash money.
0: Respect my, well, hey, go to take
1: Cash moves everything around me free Get the money, dollar dollar bill of German coalition parties is drafting a law to regulate high-frequency trading. I was very excited to see this. It's from the Wall Street Journal and it says, German federal government coalition parties are planning to regulate computer-generated high-frequency trading and present a draft law on the issue in the autumn, uh, said financial experts of both parties Tuesday. Quote, we should do what we can already instead of waiting for a regulation worked out at the European level, parliamentary fiscal policy spokesman for Chancellor Angela Merkel's Christian Democratic Union. Union Klaus-Peter Flobosch told Dow Jones Newswires, adding, this has been agreed upon with coalition partner the Free Democratic Party. FDP financial expert Volker Vissing, how ironic, not ironic, coincidental, that this guy's name is Volker because there's a Volker rule. It's hilarious. People who know about U.S. financial regulation are rolling around pissing themselves laughing right now. Anyway, uh, Volker Vising said that regulatory watchdogs should be in the position of pulling the plug on trade at any time in high-risk situations. He pounded the desk. It says here in the article he was pounding the desk. That's why I'm pounding the desk. And also trying to drown out the annoying noise of the idiot in the neighborhood who's revving his annoying muscle car in the street. We're all so impressed. Um, yeah, whatever. So, that's cool. Well, I'll be interested to see what if, if that german regulation you know it's such a globalized world now okay so germany if it regulates high frequency trading so okay maybe the next flash crash won't happen in germany but there may be german companies that are involved in it because they be, may be working overseas right and and in a globalized economy like this those companies can go anywhere they want so easily they don't even have to set up things i heard someone recently talking about these companies they set up a an office, it's like an empty warehouse with a woman answering the phone. And that's their headquarters, their international headquarters, is some warehouse. And it's just so they can have a supposed presence. I think it was a a, a subsidiary of some oil company. Because there was a thing on Business Week about, the, maybe one of the podcasts, about how Brazil is going after... ExxonMobil or some other oil company for a spill, but they pointed out and I was like, hey, good! They're going after these big companies spilling oil. That's messed up. They should go after them. But then they said, yeah, but the Brazilian state-owned company is also spilling a lot of oil and the government isn't going after them. And I was like, okay, that's messed up. We should have one system. Nobody should be spilling oil. Ah! Then I heard this article. This was fascinating. This comes from Business Week. And it said the headline was, On Jobs Day, T V reporters can't move a muscle. And this is another element of that like weird down to the wire sense thing of like how how dependent everything is on these tiny little things. Alright, so it says, you know how and they're don't forget, they're writing to the financial world, so they're not really asking us this question, but whatever. You know how reporters go on the air precisely at 8.30 a.m. Eastern time to deliver the good or bad news on U.S. unemployment on the first Friday of every month? <laughs> it's like when Jay Leno is trying to help Krusty the Clown get his comedy career back, and he goes, people like topical stuff, you know, day-to-day observations. And Krusty goes, oh, yeah, like when your lazy butler washes your sock garters, but they're still all covered in schmutz. And Jay Leno goes, Yeah, I like that, but more topical. Anyway, uh, (laughs) back to the article. There's a story behind how that happens. I came across it today while looking into a new Department of Labor rule for the reporters who get the top secret data early under, quote, lockup so they can prepare news stories. It turns out the television reporters are allowed to get in front of their cameras at 8.28 a.m. so they'll be ready for their live shots. That puts them in touch with their control rooms, potentially breaking the seal of confidentiality surrounding the process. Anyone who got early word of the market moving payroll number could make a quick killing in the stock market. And this is what we were talking about last week with uh, people saying don't do any trading in like, you know, I don't remember what report they were talking about. It wasn't I don't think it was jobs numbers, but you know, these reports come out at nine o'clock and they go, Don't do any trading in the two minutes before or the two minutes after that. It's so fascinating to me. Continuing with the article, to enforce the all important embargo, the Labor Department tells the T V reporters that they must be completely silent from eight twenty eight to eight thirty while they stand in front of their cameras. The only exception to test their microphones, they are allowed to speak one code word or phrase which changes each month month the reporters aren't even allowed to move labor spokeswoman jennifer kaplan says no one can stand stock still unblinking for two whole minutes with the possible exception of al gore unless he's getting a massage Weirdo. Yet, who is to say that such a tiny twitch of the left eyebrow isn't a secret signal that the payroll number exceeded expectations? And again, it's that weird thing, man, where it all comes down to, you know, we talked about people breaking down the timeline of one second. So I got to wonder in these two minutes, are there people who are going to start breaking down, okay, in the past, his left eyelid twitched at eight twenty nine point oh three and four hundredths of a second and and he did that seven of the last twelve times that there were bad numbers coming out so we can assume that in the future it'll be like that and it'll just be insane i just oh it's so weird to me you can't move you have to use a code word and it has to change every month and so weird it there, James Glick wrote this awesome book called Faster, which is all about this stuff, how everything just gets faster and faster and faster. Now, he's writing at it from like a, a speedophilia uh, point of view where it's like, yeah, we all love this, everything going faster. I gotta tell you, from a kind of Taoist Zen perspective, I do not love the fact that everything's always going faster. Don't get me wrong, I have a real need for speed sometimes. See what I did there, video game people? Um, but I don't confuse it with reality and it's, it's, that's, you know, a lot of times you got to stop and catch your breath. And speaking of economics, one last thing. We watched this movie called Margin Call, which is really cool. I'd never heard of it. And then I saw some something about it and I looked it up. Kevin Spacey, Jeremy Irons, Stanley Tucci, Demi Moore, and Spock from Star Trek. I don't remember his name, but he's in it. And I had never heard of the director, uh, but it's all about this this uh trading firm right on the brink of the 2008 economic collapse. And it's 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 a fascinating look at these individuals And Jeremy Irons plays this really cool guy And he has this speech that I should have sampled And maybe if I feel like it, I'll in the future Pull a sample uh, from that But it's a really good movie And I encourage you to check it out And you know what? Here, I'm going to play the trailer for you So here, listen to this This is the trailer for Margin Call And it's still silent, but it's coming Hang on
0: Mr. Dale, these are extraordinary times As you very well must know I don't understand the majority of this floor is being let go today. Eric, I'm very sorry. I was working on
1: something, but they wouldn't let me finish it. So, take a look at it. Be careful. 8.57pm. He's typing it. 10.45pm. He's finding things out.
0: I need you guys to come back up here. Wait, a sec. Just trust me, okay? I need you guys back here now. Wait a minute, what am I looking at? This it? figure here. Whoa, is that? It gets ugly in the hurry. Is that figure right? Looks pretty right to me. Inspired there are by real events. dollars of paper around the world relying on that equation. Well, we were wrong. No, you mean you were wrong, sir. If those assets decrease by just twenty-five percent that loss would be greater than the current market capitalization of this entire company how long would it take to clear that from our books you cannot be doing what you're thinking of doing sell it all today you're selling something that you know has no value so that we may survive there are three ways to make a living in this business be first be smarter or cheat these people wandering around with absolutely no idea what's about to happen you're a very important piece of this puzzle are you in on this i can't tell you that people are going to say some very nasty things about what we do here today if we're going down then you damn well know it'll be together i'm not sure that i do know that The ground is shifting below our feet. Remember this day, boys. Remember this
1: day. Margin call. Now, it sounds like, and it looks like, if you find the trailer, it looks like some sort of, like, crazy, uh... You know, there's going to be gangsters involved, there's going to be bullets shot and fired and guns, and it's not. It's totally not. It's about the people making very hard decisions about how to react to this crisis, and the question about what they're doing with their lives is really interesting, and Stanley Tucci's character talks about how he used to build bridges. He's an engineer, and Zachary Quinto is the dude from Star Trek with with the eyebrows. Uh, He talks about how he was a rocket scientist. And he says it's all basically numbers. And I've said this before on this show that Wall Street loves to snatch up the smartest minds in science and math so it can put them to work coming up with confusing algorithms that uh, make lots and lots of money. And so, anyway, check it out Margin Call. It's a really good movie. Let's talk education. <laughs>
0: We love you,
1: love you, love a couple of crazy stories. First one's out of Texas. Uh, there's this. One's out of Texas. One's out of Canada. Uh, Texas school district approves RFID tags for student attendance. A school district in San Antonio, Texas, is looking to track some of its students uh, using radio frequency identification system (RFID) tags next year. Uh, this is from DailyTech.com. Uh, Northside Independent School District hopes to use RFID tags in two of its schools in order to help protect its students and also increase revenue. So notice the two things. I feel like one of those is a PR move. These microchips are going to help us keep track of your kids for their safety and also help us raise money. But really, it's safety. RFID tags are ID cards that track the location of the holder. Northside Independent School District wants to take a part in a trial next year where John Jay High School and Anson Jones Middle School students will carry the RFID tags at all times. This is about 6,290 students total. Quote, We want to harness the power of the technology to make schools safer, know where our students are all the time in school, and increase revenues, said Pasqual Gonzalez, district spokesman. Quote, Parents expect that we always know where their children are, and this technology will help us do that. So right there there's I mean I'm sorry I'm I'm always cautious about how our society slips toward uh 1984esque uh tracking of individuals and I think privacy is still important call me crazy I know that makes me a weirdo these days but I think this is sketchy because it says students don't have a right to privacy we know when you're in the bathroom we know when you're not in class we know I mean I don't get me wrong I know that there's a safety concern but Look, if there were an epidemic of students vanishing from school, we could talk about this. But there isn't, and I don't want to. But here's the kicker. RFID tags could also help the school district offset cuts in state funding because attendance plays a huge role in determining revenue. With a more exact attendance count via RFID tags, Northside could receive a total of $1.7 million next year from higher attendance and Medicaid reimbursements for busing special education students. If the the trial proves successful, RFID tags could go district-wide and bring in a much larger payoff. And you'll forgive me if I'm a little cynical when I say that's probably a more Significant reason why this district wants to do it, and, and I'm not saying that districts shouldn't have a desire to get more money, because yes, every school district in America is currently desperate for cash. But this isn't the way to do it, people. I'm sorry. Putting okay, they're not putting microchips in our kids, but that's the next logical step, isn't it? I mean, dude, put a microchip in. Them. Why not? Ah, I vote no. And then in Canada, uh, there was a teacher who was suspended for giving out zeros to his students. Um... An Edmonton high school teacher says he has been suspended for giving students zeros on uncompleted assignments or exams. Lyndon Dorval, a physics teacher at Ross Shepherd High School, has been giving the mark for work that wasn't handed in or tests not taken, even though it goes against the school's no zero policy. The thinking behind the policy is that failing to complete assignments is a behavioral issue, and marks should reflect ability, not behavior. Dorval said he couldn't in good conscience comply with the rule, quote, I just didn't have a choice, he said. I just couldn't not do it. It. I tried to talk myself out of it many times, but it was just something so important to me, I just had to go through with it. End quote. Now, this is a bit of a tricky issue, and I recognize the valid points made on both sides of it. Um, there's something in the United States called uh, assessment for learning, and the idea is that if a student doesn't do the thing, that doesn't necessarily mean that they can't do it, it's just that they're not doing it. And the fact that they're not doing it, is a different question about whether they can do it. So the theory is that you have to address the fact that they're not doing it differently from the fact that they can't do it. And a, and a zero should be given to a person who can't in any way, shape, or form do the thing that's being assessed. And, you know, most kids, once they get around to doing it, they can some do it at least a little bit, right? And so that's what you should be evaluating, how well they can do the thing. But as a teacher, I'll tell you right now, when my students hand something in late, first of all, if they if they turn it in ever, they can get some points for it, okay? I don't have the attitude that some teachers have, which is, you didn't do it by the due date, you can't ever get any points for it. I don't like that. I do want kids to do it better late than never, yeah. There's going to be a penalty, and, you know, I had a discussion recently with one of my students about whether half off, as soon as it's late, should it be half off, or should it be a per- percentage thing, 10% off for each day it's late, or whatever, but that creates crazy, and is what I told them that creates a mathematical nightmare. I have to try to keep track of how many days the thing was late for every assignment. And I'm currently buried under all this late work from students who just didn't feel like doing it because nine times out of 10, when they turn in a late assignment and there, I have a little slip, this is late and they put on there why it's late. And sometimes it's good reasons. Death in the family. I had to go to a funeral. I had to go on a college tour, you know, baseball game, whatever. Okay. I'll listen to reason nine times out of 10. Um, if they are getting half off, it's because they wrote, I was lazy. And that's it. And I don't feel bad digging half off when they were just lazy. Um, and so the question then is, okay, if a student never does it, what does it become in the grade book? Should I grade the three assignments out of 20 that he did and say, well, he did well on those three. He didn't bother doing the other 17, but he did great on these three, so he gets an A. I don't, I don't like that. I'm sorry. I'm not in favor of that. And uh, it had been suggested to me recently by someone online. I was having a discussion about this. He said, I don't think you understand what no zero policies are all about. And that's possible. But you know what? In that case, they haven't been explained to me very well. So, hey, people who support no zero policies, explain things better. Aren't you involved in education? Shouldn't you be good at explaining things? It's time for killer robots.
0: Uh, kill all humans. Kill all humans. Must kill all. Bender, wake up! <laughs> I was having the most wonderful dream. I think you were in it. Uh, uh listen, Bender, uh, uh, where's your bathroom? Bath what? Bathroom. What room? Bathroom. What what? Ah, never mind. Mm.
1: Hey, sexy mama. Want to kill all humans? This is the number one thing people have been sending me stories about. Sometimes I'll have people send me economic stories or stuff to do with education, but most of the stuff I get from listeners has to do with killer robots. For instance, Jason G. sent me an article from NPR about Get Ready for the First Robot President! And it says, the next humanoid in the White House may be called the first robot president because he will be reckoning with the increasing influx and influence of robots in our everyday lives. And there are jokes about, oh, Mitt Romney's kind of robotic. And and that's not the point. The point is that robots matter. Um, We are suddenly surrounded by dancing droids, soccer bots, robot cars, and drones that do all kinds of work for us and watch our every move and sometimes drop bombs on people. The politics of robotics, however, is a tricky thing. To support the development of robotics can be viewed as denigrating to the work of humans. Robots take jobs from people. On the other hand, to rant against the research and development of robotics could be viewed by voters as short-sighted, unimaginative, and luditical. Now, as I've said before, that's not really the question, whether robots should be used in the workplace or not, because they're going to be used. The question is, what happens to the wealth that gets generated by robots? Because... The wealth that's generated by workers, ostensibly, the worker gets a fair part of that wealth. Now, we all know that's not actually how it goes down under, you know, corporate capitalism, but that's a different matter. The point is, once you bring a robot in, there's no labor cost. Hey, cha-ching! But the point is that instead of taking the wealth that's generated by that robot and distributing it to everybody, the wealth almost entirely goes to the owners of the company. And that's messed up because we should all be benefiting from the robotization of menial work. If, if, if tomorrow robots were the ones collecting our trash, we shouldn't have people who used to be trash collectors suddenly desperate for work somewhere else. We should say, here's the money that is being saved by using robots for this and hooray, no humans have to go digging through trash anymore. And that's not even talking about the people who like their job is to live in trash piles. This is a real thing, by the way, if you don't know about this, you got to look it up. Uh, uh, they go digging through trash, that's their whole life, and they find, like, copper wiring, and, and, you know, uh, aluminum, or whatever it is, and, and they sell it for very, very low prices, and that's what they do, like, that's their job, is digging through garbage, uh, anyway, if we went to robot trash collectors, uh, or binmen, as you all call them in the UK, uh, th- that well should be spread around to everybody, We we should say, yes, awesome. Not only do we not have to have humans digging through our trash, now we can have uh, robots doing it. And because we're saving money, hey, let's spread that money around that we're saving. Yay. No, it goes to the company that owns the robots. Yeah. Richard Primrose sent me something called the President's Kill List. And this is from The New Yorker. And they do really good investigative work. And they do really in-depth reporting, and they have good links to other in-depth reporting things, um, they talk about they, they were talking about these news articles that appeared in Newsweek and, and uh, USA Today and World Report or whatever, um, and it was about this kill list, how the president has a kill list. And the article is very interesting because it says this, The kill list story is a reminder of how much language matters and how dangerous it is when the plain meaning of a word is ignored. Each might include a mini-glossary baseball cards for the PowerPoint slides with the biographies and faces of targets. And these are targets targeted, people targeted by drones with bombs in them. Terror Tuesday are meetings where targets are sorted out. Nominations are code language for death marked finalists. Uh, Personality strikes are drone strikes that aim to kill a person. And signature strikes go after a group of people whose names one didn't know because of the way they seemed from pictures in the sky to be acting. So the president is making these decisions about who to send these drones after based on how they seem to be acting from pictures taken by other drones or satellites or whatever it is. That, that makes me very nervous. I don't believe the United States government should be killing people based on that. I'm sorry, that makes me a hippie leftist tree hugger, unpatriotic, whatever. Uh, continuing the article, this is the kind of attack that, in one incident mentioned by Daniel Claidman in his Newsweek piece, led to, quote, persuasive reports of dozens of women and children dying. A lawyer who saw that on Kill TV, the feed that let the military and lawyers watch strikes, said later, quote, if I were Catholic, I'd have to go to confession. End quote. Drone strikes, as opposed to ground troops, bring with them a comforting, comforting illusion of distance. And we talked about this before. Uh, Al Jazeera had their thing about drone strikes, and it's that same thing. Uh, we're so and 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 when it comes to democrat versus republicans i think it's kind of sad that we are so willing to trust obama when he seizes the same power that many of us lambasted president bush for seizing it's pretty pathetic we should speak truth to whichever president is controlling these robots and dropping them on innocent women and children uh and uh yeah it's it's wrong i vote against it ah. meanwhile uh, a little happy news about um the world of robots. MSNBC had this thing about, from this Japanese company, that talks about, um, carrying your friends with you, as tiny robots. I'm not making this up. Here's the article. Ever feel like you have a little person on your shoulder keeping track of your every move, providing encouragement to keep up the good work, or stop you from doing something bad? That little person may soon be more than just your conscience. It could be a robot that provides real time interaction between you and a remote friend or parent as you do what you do. Imagine going on a trip, for example, and bringing along your best friend who's stuck at home, or sticking a robot on your child's shoulder to remotely chaperone a Friday night out. That'd be a fun Friday night out. Hey, Tommy, welcome to the party! What is that? This is my robot. It's also my mom. Which way to the Wii? You're not invited anymore, Tommy. Go home. Was it Tommy that it had earlier on? I don't know. Anyway, um, yeah. The robot, known as the Miniature Humanoid, or MH2, is under development at Yamagata University in Japan. It has head and body. It, this is what it says in the article. It has head and body. It moves like a person. It even breathes like one. There's also a photograph of the... Uh, uh, artist conception of what it'll look like when it's finally done, and it, it looks like a tiny little person sitting on your shoulder. That would freak me the heck out if I ever saw someone walking around. It would freak me out the first time, but you know what? We'd get used to it because that's what we do. We get used to anything. Now I want to know. Here's the thing, because it's supposed to be controlled, kind of like Connect. So with they mentioned Connect, you can you control it with Connect. So your friends at home watching you tour the Eiffel Tower or whatever, and he goes, "Oh, look over there," and he points, and the robot points. Is that really that important? I don't know that that's so important to me to have the robot part. Why couldn't you just I mean cuz the for me, I mean even even ignoring the fact that it's creepy that you are accompanied through remote control televisual lenses to to be feeding this data to your friend who's back home um I also think that it's silly to have the robot part there. Why not just have something much more inconspicuous, something in your eyeglasses or your sunglasses or your baseball hat that has a little camera lens, and then your friend can join along and then have an earpiece or something where he talks to you or whatever it is. It's just very silly. And speaking of the data that's going through cell towers, I finally got around to watching that Frontline piece about guys falling off of cell phone towers, and it's exactly what I said. The subcontractors are entirely responsible for the safety, and when they're cutting corners, it's because the The cell companies like AT&T and Verizon are telling them, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. The schedule is very tight. We got to push. We got to push. We got to push. Get this thing done faster. Get it done faster. Get it done faster. And so the subcontractors are like, we got to get it done faster. No time for all these safety requirements. And it sounds like a lot of the guys who are doing this kind of work are, you know, gung-ho types, adventure seekers, and uh, taking chances and stuff, and doing stupid things. And I'm not trying to absolve the individuals for doing stupid things, but... I'm sorry, it's the company's responsibility to make sure that they don't cut corners that can cost them their lives. And the companies aren't doing that. And the the AT&T and Verizon all go, it's not our fault, we're not responsible, we can't look out for everybody. And there's a lot of people going to talk about nanny state, oh, government shouldn't be requiring blah, blah, blah. But you know what? These cell phone companies... And they said that the accident rate for climbers on cell phone towers is 10 times the rate of construction workers. So it's not just that, well, some people work in risky industries because construction workers working high up also work in a risky industry. But they have uh, uh, certain levels of protection that these cell phone climbers don't have. And it's because it's not watched as carefully as it should be. And it's hard to prove the culpability. Uh, AT&T, you know, they benefit from the speed with which these towers go up but they don't bear any of the cost. They externalize all the costs of the, the dangers that take place when something goes wrong because of the speed with which these towers need to go up. Anyway, we're done with economics. Let's talk about more crazy stuff, uh, the et cetera section. Finally, we have something from the Daily Mail uh, they talked about this terrorist um, named Mohammed mirah and uh, the headline was, Violent video game Call of Duty once more linked to high-profile mass murder. And if you know about the dude in Norway, Anders Breivik, he, he liked to play Call of Duty, and he liked to play Dragon Age Origins, which I like both of those games. And he was talking about, you could use Call of Duty to train for this sort of mass murder that I carried out. But you know what? He didn't. There's no, I mean, I don't think you actually could. That's not what he said, that he actually trained. But that's what every news report is saying, that, oh, he trained using Call of Duty. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. He liked to play it. And in fact, he what he said about World of Warcraft is that if you are involved in planning a terrorist attack, like he was, you can cover your tracks by saying you're just really into a MMO, an online multiplayer game. And so people hear you, you're into World of Warcraft, and they go, oh, leave him alone. He's got no life now. He just spends all his time doing that. And you could be making bombs and planning your terrorist route or whatever, and people think you're just playing World of Warcraft. So that's what he said, okay? And that's, you know, whatever. So it's just like video games are a cover. But the Daily Mail loves to have sensationalistic headlines, so their article's about... Uh, here's what it said: The veil-wearing former wife of terrorist Mohammed Mara says the couple played violent video games, including Call of Duty, together before he gunned down seven people in cold blood. And they're trying to make it sound as though that was what caused him to become a terrorist, or it was a significant part of his life, and yada yada yada. No, it's not. It's like saying, because you know what? I'll bet, I'll bet those two people also. And I, I, of course, they mention he's, she's a veil-wearing. Oh, the Muslims—they're coming to get us. Anyway, whatever. and I know some Muslims are, but you know what? A lot of, most, the vast majority of Muslims aren't, so quit with the hysteria, people. They, they didn't mention Breivik's wearing a cross, did they? No, somehow, he's not a Christian warrior. Yeah, okay, anyway, um, what was I gonna say? Yeah, so, but I'll bet these, this man and his wife also probably watched movies together, I'll bet, I'll bet the movies The movies were the thing. But actually, he, she goes on to say, uh, Miriam, who became Mara's bride as a young teenager in front of an imam, said he was, quote, a kind and gentle husband. Later on, she says, we talked a lot and he needed someone to listen. He needed love and I compared him to a baby. That sounds to me like he had some sort of emotional problems. If she thought of him as like a baby, uh, that's probably more to do with his terrorism than any video game. But here was the headline, the lead that they buried at the end of the article said, she added, we also watched The Simpsons together. Dun- Dun, dun We got the real culprit here. It's the Simpsons. That's who's to blame. It's a good thing he didn't listen to hip hop music or they'd be blaming that. Let's talk about hip hop. hip hop. Saul Williams is a really interesting slam poet and hip hop artist, sort of, um, I don't know how to describe him, okay, so, in the 1990s, there's this movie called Slam, and it's an awesome film, you totally gotta watch it, it's about this guy named Raymond Joshua, who gets busted dealing weed, and he's working for this group called Dodge City, and he's, he's working for them, and he's hoping that they will help him get a, you know, put a record out, because he's interested in writing lyrics, okay, so, he gets busted with the weed, right after his friend Mike gets shot, he ends up in prison, and Dodge City wants him to fight with them against this other group of thugs that are trying to muscle in on their territory. And the other group thinks that maybe they he snitched on someone uh, who shot his friend Mike and, and yada, yada, yada. He didn't snitch on anybody, but he got busted with the weed, so he's looking at 10 years in prison for these mandatory minimums. And read Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, because I'm reading it now. And she, Michelle Alexander keeps... Hang on, we'll get back to Saul Williams in a second. I'm reading Michelle Alexander's book, and she keeps doing this thing, it drives me crazy, where she says... She she'll make a claim that's like the the reason the, the main driving force behind this Supreme Court decision was to immunize the entire justice system from charges of discrimination on the basis of race. And I'll read that and I'll go, "Come on, Alexander, how can you say that? You don't know that. You can't. You that's a stretch. You're you're assuming too much. That's not fair." And then I'll read the rest of the section of that book, and I'll just be like, well, geez, that it it is what it sounds like. She's proving her case so specifically and so completely. I, I can't help but agree with her. So she's an amazing writer. It's an astounding book. You've got to read it. The New Jim Crow. Everything you thought you knew about the drug war, unless you understood how she describes it, which, you know, some of us already did. But then it gives you uh, confirmation that, you know what? You're not insane if you always thought this was a war waged primarily on communities of color. Not because they use drugs more, which they don't. Um, Yeah, anyway. Okay, so... He gets, so Raymond Joshua in the movie Slam gets busted. He's in prison. He's in between these two forces, which are on a collision course. He's getting caught in the middle. They want him to fight. He doesn't want to have anything to do with it. He, just wants, he says at one point, I'm trying to be myself. And his buddy Hoffa, who's involved with Dodge City, says, it's hard to be yourself in here, man. This is a jail. You don't have a choice. You're going to have to fight. And he's like, I'm not looking to fight. I'm looking to just be me. I'm looking to write. You know, I need a pen and a pad, he says. So anyway, the, 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 the poetry, the lyrics, the words become his third way. Um, and it's just a fascinating story. And that was the first time I'd ever heard of Saul Williams because he plays Raymond Joshua. He wrote the poetry that Raymond Joshua reads, and he wrote a lot of the rest of the film. So when I found an album by Saul Williams, I was blown away. His first album is called Amethyst Rockstar, and it's glorious. It's absolutely fascinating. Um, there's some tracks that aren't so great, but by and large, you know, 80% of the tracks on that first album, Amethyst Rockstar, are just mind-blowing. I listen to it over and over and over and over again. I love it. I'm going to play you a track from Coded Language. Uh, one of the songs on that first album. His second album wasn't nearly as good. There were some songs that were decent, but by and large, it felt like he was going in a rock and roll direction. And then his third album he did with Trent Reznor, and it was kind of a remake of Ziggy Stardust. And I don't even remember the name of it. It's like Niggy Tardust or something, and it's it's this look at race, sort of. um, And there's some, again, some tracks that are good, but by and large, it felt kind of strange, and it was this concept album, and it wasn't very hip-hop at all, and that's not to say it's a bad album, because I recognize that, you know what, people don't want to be pigeonholed, I understand that, but I came to love Saul Williams as a hip-hop artist, and when he goes off in this different direction, I don't love that kind of music as much, I'm sorry, and maybe that's just where I'm at, or, you know, whatever, some prejudice I have against different kinds of music. He has a new album out, uh, I just looked it up, I wasn't very interested in it, it's called, like, Volcanic Sunlight, or something like that, and I listened to a couple of tracks, I was, Impressed at all and he had a video Where he reminded me a lot of Jean-Michel Basquiat Who was a New York artist for a while Um, For a while He was an artist in New York Jean-Michel Basquiat was And it kind of feels like Saul Williams is keeping Basquiat's tradition alive which is great but the music isn't nearly as good as the stuff he put out on Amethyst Rockstar so let me just leave it there I love his first album Amethyst Rockstar you should definitely check it out and I'm going to play you the vast majority of this song called Coded Language which is absolutely astounding and you should find the lyrics because they're just dynamite uh he's saying so much profound stuff here and at one point he's giving this list of artists in whose name we are carrying on a tradition of struggle and excellence through our use of language and so that's enough babbling for me let me play you coded language from saul williams <laughs> Whereas, rig beats have been the missing
0: link connecting the diaspora community to its drum-woven past. Whereas, the quantized drum has allowed the whirling mathematicians to calculate the ever-changing distance between rock and stardom. Whereas, the velocity of spinning vinyl cross-faded, spun backwards and re-released at the same given moment of recorded history, yet at a different moment in time's continuum, has allowed history to catch up with the present. We do hereby declare reality unkept by the changing standards of dialogue, statements such as, keep it real, especially when punctuating or anticipating modes of ultra-violence inflicted psychologically or physically, or depicting an unchanging pool of events will henceforth be seen as retroactive and not representative of the individually determined is collective consciousness of this state of being and the lessened distance between thought patterns and their secular manifestations. The role of men as listening receptacles is to be increased by a number no less than 70% of the current enlisted as vocal aggressors. Motherfuckers better realize, now is the time to self-actualize. We have
1: Obviously, that piece combines two things that I love dearly, which is hip-hop, well, several things I love dearly, hip-hop and drum and bass music, and then it also brings in the literary nerd element with the references to Shakespeare and uh, uh, Lorraine Hansberry and uh, Richard Wright, and I mean uh, uh, that list of names, I w- I love, when we do the hip-hop class, I love just going through that list of names and telling, p- telling the students about all these people and why he might be referencing them, and I'm not even totally clear on a lot of them. I know that Four Little Girls refers to the four girls so uh, uh, Spike Lee made a movie called Four Little Girls uh, which is all about these girls who were in this church, I believe it was in Alabama, and uh, it was blown up by these white supremacist terrorists who wanted to try to stop the civil rights organizing that was happening and their deaths became this sort of focal point for the movement and uh, a demonstration of the depths and the depravity to which these white supremacists would go to try to reinforce the system of um, suffering and 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 white supremacy uh Anyway, yeah, so I I think Saul Williams is great. I'm not such a big fan of his music that he's been putting out lately, but I have hopes that at some point he'll go back to the hip-hop stuff that he was doing in Slam and Amethyst Rockstar. And now it's time for the quote of the week.
0: Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Stop the is near, but don't panic, You can't function if you live in a fear. Pay attention, you gotta listen to
1: hear. this week's quote comes to us from Madeline Kunin. Uh, she was a Swiss American diplomat and politician. She was the 77th governor of Vermont from 1985 until 1991 as a member of the Democratic Party she also served as United States ambassador to Switzerland from 1996 to 1999 she was Vermont's first and to this date only female governor as well as the first Jewish governor of Vermont and she said uh, quote like art political action gives shape and expression to the things that we fear as well as to those that we desire it is a creative process drawing on the power to imagine as well as to To act. So, people, imagine and act... And have a good week that's it show notes and links to everything in this week's podcast are on my blog didactic synapse fbesp.org slash my website is the floating brain of eric Piotrowski, which is at fbesp.org and it has links to music and fiction and multimedia and lots of other stuff I've made shout outs this week to turtle 502 for the very kind tweet that he sent out and everybody who's been sending me news articles and uh, stuff to look at and uh, people who have been writing reviews on itunes and other places and people who forward on the messages when I release a new show and all that other stuff I don't have a lot of time to edit this thing, so I apologize if there are dumb edits that I forgot to cut out or uh, things I needed to fix. I'm sorry, I don't have a lot of time to edit this thing. I'm a very busy man. Listen, I don't have time to play with the phone here. I got a lot of stuff I gotta get done. Thanks for listening, people. Please get in touch with feedback or questions or news articles that you come across that you think are a good fit for this show. I can be reached at ESP at FBESP.org. I'm on Twitter at duke scath, And that's it, so thanks for listening. I will stop talking now. Now, turn on. Didactic Syncast is a production of the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, which is solely responsible for its content. This program is a joint venture of ribonucleic records and Garrison Multimedia. Our show is made possible by a grant from the Fargus Foundation. Some restrictions may apply. See SOR for details. Fight the power. So powerful.